good afternoon, uh, Mr. Ahmed. Thank you so much for uh, uh, joining us on this Twitter space. Am I Thank audible you to for you? inviting me? Uh, am, I, uh, am I audible to you, sir? Yeah, yeah, you are. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, yes, I can hear you. Yeah, great. So uh, yeah. I just introduce you. Uh, uh, to our listeners who will, you know, over the course of time will be joining us. Uh, just a little introduction about you. Uh, uh, you are a known scholar, uh, and I'm very happy to host uh, uh, Professor Hilal Ahmed. Uh, he has worked on political Islam, Muslim politics of representation, politics of symbols in South Asia. Uh, his books, Muslim Political Discourse in Post-Colonial India, Monuments, Memory and Contestations, and another book, Siyasi Muslims, A Story of Political Islam in India, is very well known. He has made documentaries encountering the political Jama Masjid, and the other one, uh, equally riveting and engaging, is Kutub Ek Adhura Afsana. Now, today, uh, this is the third part of the series which we have started, short Twitter space discussion. Uh, which we started uh, last week, and we are engaging intellectuals, uh, political representatives, uh, authors, writers on the issue of Kutub, Taj Mahal, Gyanwapi, and Kashi, and trying to see this whole narrative, this whole discourse from multiple perspectives. So today we have got Professor Hilal Ahmed, and sir, let me uh, let me begin this conversation somewhat with you. How do we frame this uh, debate, sir, when there is a contestation of a historical site like Kutub, Taj, Kashi, Matra? Is it only about a claim or it is about acknowledging a truth or it is about the fact that somehow uh, the imagined civilizational values are they have uh, they are they are coming face to face uh, with uh, constitutional commitment. There are multiple ways to uh, frame this debate. I would like you to frame this conversation. Yeah, uh, thank you very much, Karthik, for uh, inviting me uh, on this topic. Uh, I think uh, first of all we have to make a few clarification when it comes to reconceptualizing questions of religious places of worship. Uh, our imagination is, our imagination of India's past is basically uh, determined by uh, the ways in which history is taught to us. Uh, and it is very important for all of us to realize that uh, we are the product of colonial knowledge system. And colonial knowledge, and especially when I say colonial knowledge, it's not merely about English education. It is also about introducing us to our own past. And we must remember that when British were the first who started writing uh, Indian history for the first time, and the purpose of British history was primarily to find out those nuance point by which they can rule us. And if that is the case, then they introduce us to our past as if India was a battleground of history. In fact, that they taught us that there was something called, they divided in India's past into three, 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 uh, you know, neatly uh, worked out space, um, time frame. Uh, 
ancient India would become Hindu and Sikh, Hindu and uh, Buddhist or Jain. And medieval India was always described as Islamic. And modern India was always seen partly British, partly modern. So therefore, this classification of Indian history, in my view, was highly problematic. And that gave us uh, an assumption that actually everything that is here in India is outcome of a contestation. So unfortunately, we still look at uh, historic sites uh, and especially the religious, the religious places of worship only as contest, not as consensus. That's one. Second, whenever we think of India, I think we also have the second clarification is that whenever we look at India, we should not look at India entirely uh, as a multicultural society. Because again, this term multiculturalism is coming from the West. If we want to look at India through the prism of India's own, uh, India's own self, then we must realize that India is not multicultural. India is actually a multi-religious society which has evolved its own culture. And this culture is uniquely Indian. So therefore, uh, in my view, we have to also realize that India is a multi-religious society which shares one culture. Now, if the culture is one and there are different ways in which we, uh, we practice that culture, then the question of conflict would become very different. So the conflict over historical places and especially religious places of worship, I think, need to be seen with regard to multi-religious multi uh, manifestation of India's culture. So if in a society, various kind of religious exist, obviously, uh, no one would say that there would be no conflict. But how should we address this conflict? Should we address this conflict as civilizational, civilizational contestations? or should we address this conflict as uh, something that is locally constituted? Obviously, there is no one Hindu community in India or there is no one Muslim community in India. So any conflict of any kind must be seen in its specificity. Only then we would be able to understand the nuances of a particular conflict over religious places of worship. Uh, Professor Ahmed, there is also a, another aspect to it. Uh, before we get into dealing of uh, Kutub, Taj, Kashi and Matra, there is also an issue of associating the concept of violence mm -hmm. with only Islam in India. Uh -huh. uh, it is as if violence as an act Interfaith and interfaith was absent in ancient India, mm. and uh, and with 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 and, and this gets even more uh, I would say uh, strong uh, the way also Gandhi reinterpreted Hinduism and marshaled mm. it during the freedom struggle mm. for noble goal. Mm. Mm. Your thoughts on it? Uh, I think that, you know, uh, see, first of all, we have to make a distinction between what we mean by uh, textual religion and the way in which religion as a spirituality is practiced by common people. So I am always very conscious while using the term Hinduism or Islam because there could be two meanings of them. For, for instance, uh, if I say Islam, 
so there is obviously a textual islam which is uh, which rely heavily on uh, textual meaning of quran etc but that that religion is you know is not always practiced by people who proudly call themselves muslim uh, because their way of approaching or their own ways of practicing religion which they call islam is in many respect different from the textual explanation given to us why i am saying this because uh, the question of violence uh, why violence is only associated uh, with islam i think we need to go back to uh, again the colonial uh, imagination of indian history or in the indian past uh, if we go back to that uh, first of all if i then uh, entirely focus on textual uh, sources obviously uh, mahabharata and ramayana etc they were written before you know centuries before the uh, presence of islam in south asia so in that case obviously violence is an important aspect of politics and violence is also an important aspect of religiosity uh, in every religion and violence is sometimes condemned sometimes celebrated so uh, reducing violence to a very particular to any particular religion in my view is not correct when we come to textual islam or textual hinduism but if we look at everyday hinduism and everyday islam we find different interpretation of violence uh, in our everyday uh, world so if suppose if we go back to uh, medieval times i think uh, we also think carefully if a mosque or a temple or any religious place of worship is demolished by a particular king or emperor why uh, the local communities who were in a way um, you know very powerful in in a way why they did not resist why they were not involved in protecting uh, those religious places of worship it simply means that the religion of rulers and the conflict of rulers were different from the ways in which religion was seen at the bottom level of society so in many instances whenever uh, you know rulers are linked to communities religious communities in in today's context i think uh, we if if we do that we won't be able to understand the historical nuances associated with various conflicts uh, which are you know coming on surface these days very well said uh, uh, professor but now let me take you to the uh, peculiarities of some case for example now uh, how how do you address the issue of kutub you know a part of it has been explained in your documentary kutub ek adhura afsana now how do you address the issue of grievance uh, when you when you when you have the singular narrative saying that everything was destroyed and uh, on that uh, a medieval uh, mosque was built it might be true for some cases but it is not true for every case uh i think uh, thank you very much i think uh, to remind uh, our listeners that this film called kutub ek adhura afsana tries to uh, capture different perspective uh in relation to the debate on desecration of hindu temples in medieval india uh i think coming back to the question which you asked uh you know uh, 
when we say secular narrative, so we have to be very clear that there is no one secular narrative in India. Uh, in fact, if we go back to the 1947 moment when India got independence, uh, you know, most of the Mughal uh, built uh, Indo-Islamic heritage sites remained in India, while Pakistan that was established on the basis of religious identity got Harappa and Mohanjo-Daro. So in a way, uh, the uh, Indian archaeology was divided quite strangely. So it was, uh, you know, Indian sec the, the, the Indian secular narrative was so strong and so accommodating that it provided a logical uh, space to virtually all forms of uh, heritage that was available to us when we became a republic in 1950. Uh, so the attitude of our attitude towards the, the, uh, towards the contested sites was very interesting. And there are people who are actually now, it's fashionable to blame everything or reduce everything to Nehru. But we must realize that Nehru was not a person who would hide the, or who would not address the complicated facts of history. For example, uh, if you read Discovery of India, Nehru is very critical of Aurangzeb. Nehru is not hiding the fact that Aurangzeb actually ordered demolition of various temples, etc. So, uh, in order to respond to that conflicting history, Nehru appreciated the fact that this has happened in the past. Now, how to how should we address these questions in post-colonial India, post-independence India, when we have become a republic? So, Nehru's uh, argument was very straightforward. He says that we must acknowledge the fact that uh, religious places of worship were demolished by rulers. But at the same time, he also emphasizes the fact now uh, we need not to have a politics of revenge. Rather, we appreciate the fact that something wrong has happened in the past, but whatsoever available to us must be protected as heritage of India. And that's the reason why if you go to Qutub Minar, you find an introductory history, a plaque that is installed at the gate of this World Heritage Site, in which it is categorically written that 27 Hindu and Jain temples were actually demolished to build this mosque. And remember, Nehru was the Prime Minister and Nehru as a historian and Nehru who had deep interest in uh, Archaeological Survey of India, he was instrumental in actually preserving these buildings in such way. But if you read the entire introductory history of that particular, uh, you know, that particular mosque, Uvatul Islam, you find that the conflicting part of the story is given in just two or three lines. But the remaining part is more technical and more artistic, meaning that in India, the secularism of historical monument evolved in a way that we must appreciate that something has wrong happened in the past, but at the moment, as a historic, uh, as a historical entity, as well as an archaeological, archaeologically significant building, as well as our cultural heritage, we must protect these buildings in order to give it to the future generation. Because our purpose is not to evolve a politics of conflict, 
or not to encourage future generation uh, to have some kind of an ideology of revenge. Uh, Professor, you have written very extensively uh, on the issue of uh, uh, representation. A part of it was also addressed in your book, Siyasi Muslims, the story of political Islam. So I'm sort of trying to converge uh, two issues. Uh, it's up to you. Uh, which one would you pick up? When we, when we talk about uh, Kashi and Matsura, it is also within a narrative about Muslim representation. Uh, and, it and it gets problematized during elections. They have no tickets. Uh, the numbers have dwindled in Raj Sabha, Lok Sabha. I'm not getting into bureaucracy and other details. So wh when you have a narrative of Kashi and Matsura, and when simultaneously when you have this issue of representation, it feeds into, uh, both of them feed into each other. Uh, no, I, I am not actually, I'm not making any direct connection between the politics of some kind and the very complicated and complex issues associated with different forms of political representation. So we have to make a uh, you know, very clear distinction between these two. Uh, first of all, uh, about, uh, you know, uh, this whole issue of uh, representation, I think we have to be, uh, and that's the reason why I always admire Gandhi's clarity. Gandhi, unlike Nehru and unlike others, uh, made a very interesting distinction between the past and history. For Gandhi, past is something which is a very broad thing and history is only one way to approach it. So that's the reason why Gandhi said in Hind Swaraj, I think that's the only book Gandhi said that he would abide by. Uh, and he said in Hind Swaraj that there is a saying in Gujarati, so it happens. So he said that if we continue to evoke history, conflict will perpetuate. So therefore, there is a need to think of past uh, in a way which is not historical, meaning that we must understand that in the past, some, in, in the past there would be some problems. But if we want to have a futuristic understanding of our country or our nation, I think it is very important that we actually start feeling the past. So memories for Gandhi is something, is a source by which we feel the past. Now that perspective is very useful when we look at the complicated stories given to us as histories either by the Hindutva forces or by the secularist. In Gandhian framework, spirituality is most, more important. Suppose if there is a mosque and a temple side by side, and suppose two communities are fighting, I think in a Gandhian framework, people would sit down and decide on a spiritual basis what would be the best solution. So if, if, that is, if we really want to solve these issues, we can certainly do that. Now, coming back to the second part of your question, that is about the representation. As I said, that political representation in India uh, is a complicated issue because we do not have religious representation. There is no uh, reservation uh, or the protected seats for Muslims or any religious group for that matter. Uh, but Muslims have got certain uh, minority rights. Now, uh, so I think that uh, institutionally, like for instance, how many Muslims uh, are going to be in UPSC, etc. 
uh, I think it is th these questions need to be understand in a wider sense, meaning that what is the background of people who call themselves Muslims? So in a way, uh, such a commission report is an important report. It is actually, it, this report must be seen in an historical perspective because Muslim, who are Muslims in India? They are historically poor and marginalized communities. Now, because they, and remember that during the time of, since we do not have any adequate or reliable data during the time when India had Muslim rulers, but if you look at different historical studies, you find that even at that time, Muslim communities were poor and marginalized. So therefore, linking poor and marginalized Muslim communities of today or the past to the Muslim rulers is absolutely wrong. Now, in this context, I think uh, we also then look at the present scenario. Who, why, uh, you know, why Muslims are not able to make it to higher uh, higher services and therefore I think it would be and now we have got NSSO data etc and there are various good studies happening at the moment which says that socio-economic factors are also crucial socio-economic uh, certainly religious we cannot ignore the fact that communalism does not we cannot say that communalism does not exist but co communalism is not the only or anti-Muslim discourse is not the only reason why Muslims are lagging behind. There are other issues and I think uh, we must get rid of this reduce uh, this reductionist approach. Communalism is important. Anti-Muslim discourse is certainly there. But I think that that's not the only, that could be one of the reasons, but that could not be the only reason why Muslims are uh, marginalized and why Muslims are lagging behind. Uh, so this is what I think, but I think if you want to have proper discussion on the idea of representation, etc., I think we must have we must have a separate discussion for that, and it should not be linked to Gyanwafi and the historical monument debate. Sure. Uh, see, uh, that is why I said that uh, uh, you know there are two uh, there are two different aspects, but. Uh, when it comes to elections, they start feeding into each other. But yeah. uh, you have very, uh, uh, very in a, in, a, in a very simple language explain the complexity of the issue of representation, and why do you feel and why why, why do you think that it it cannot be connected with Gyanwapi? and I yeah. and I respect that. Yeah. So my my next question to you is: Do you think that uh, issues like Matra and Kashi can be resolved? How can it be resolved when a community feels that there is a temple which has to do with uh, uh, birth of Krishna, then there are documents that they were uh, destroyed by Aurangzeb. How, how do you address it? Uh, I think, see, uh, first of all, uh, see, again, I think uh, I was watching Mahadevi Verma the other day. Uh, you know, Mahadevi Verma was one of the pillars of Shaivat poetry in Hindi. And I'm a great admirer of her poetry. And, uh, you know, Mahadevi evoked, evoked Gandhi in that interview. And she said that, uh, again, the same question, uh, that uh, how should we look at this? She said that if you over-politicized any issue, then you won't be able to solve it. And she said that, dialogue is the best thing but but who is going to conduct the dialogue so i'll give you one example in 1991 
from 1990 onward, Indian state government of India decided to have uh, negotiations between Hindus and Muslims on Babri Masjid Ram Temple dispute. And interestingly, VHP was selected as the representative of Hindus, while Babri Masjid Movement Coordination Committee and later Babri Masjid Action Committee were selected as Muslim representative. Now, who has given this power to the state to recognize who would be speaking on behalf of highly diversified Hindu communities in India or highly diversified Muslim community in the country? So, therefore, I think that if we really want to solve this, we need to, what Mahadevi said, that we need to get rid of the you know, larger politics of things. We need to actually look at the issues in its entirety at the very bottom level of society. That's one. If we give power to local communities, they and we decide that they should be the, they should be the, because in any case, they are going to be the stakeholders of, of these things. I think it is very important that we uh, look at the, the conflict at the local level because local communities are not going to, they, they are not interested in the uh, civilizational conflict type of a framework or a, of, of, a, of a perspective. So that's one. I'll give you one, one very interesting example. Now there's a lot of discussion on Aurangzeb and a lot of discussion on Aurangzeb's tomb in Khuldabad. I visited that place, did extensive field work there. And uh, I came to know that actually uh, in his last phase, Aurangzeb became, you know, a disciple of a Sufi. And when he died, uh, his grave is actually, he was, he was buried there next to that Sufi in Khuldabad. Now there is a local custom in that region of Khuldabad that young uh, brides, uh, they would come after their wedding, they would come with green bangles and the, they would you know, and Prophet offer... Kaimad, just for the uh, just to clarify to our listeners, that Aurangzeb was a practicing uh, hardline yes. Sunni. Yeah, and, and and he made a transition. Yeah, 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 yeah. So in the final phase of his life, uh, he became a Sufi, etc. And there's a lot of literature on that. I'm I'm not going into that. But what is interesting here is that the local Hindus and Muslim communities they appreciated that fact. And now Aurangzeb as a Sufi is uh, regarded in Khuldabad and young brides would come after their marriages to offer green bangle to the grave of Aurangzeb. What does it mean? That local meaning of any place of worship uh, are always different from the given dominant narratives or co of conflict. So therefore, if it is Kashi Mathura or you know, if it if 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 it it could be anyone, any 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 place of worship, I think the solution is possible if we emphasize on uh, the complexities of the local meaning of these sites. That's one. Second, you know, there's a lot of discussion. I have written a piece today in Telegraph about the 1991 law. Now, this 1991 law, you cannot protect religious places of worship only, only and only uh, through law. You have to evolve a positive politics. You have to create a positive environment so that people should respect each other. So, you know, we need a positive, uh, I would say, some kind of ethical position, ethical moral position of respect 
and respecting the sentiments of local communities. So suppose, you know, there are many people who have not even visited Mathura or uh, Banaras and they are saying that their, their, their sentiments are, are there. These are actually false sentiments. So the sentiments, I would certainly respect the sentiments of Hindus who are actually residing around these buildings and the Muslims who are there. So I think they are the main people. They are going to live there. I think we must respect their views and we should invite them to solve these issues on the basis of their mutual uh, negotiations and consents. Can we say that uh, the so-called idea of a secular politics uh, in last 20, 25, 30 years has collapsed in India? And the focus uh, should be on pluralism? <clears throat> Can you repeat the question? Yes, I'm, I'm saying that the constitution uh, hmm. without having the word secular in 52 was, was a secular yes. constitution. Hmm. It became part of a constitution, the word secular during emergency. So my question to you is, do you think that this idea of secular politics has collapsed? No. No, okay. no, no. I okay. think uh, in my view... Uh, See, it all depends on what kind of secularism, what, 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 what do we mean by secularism? Because if, uh, remember that secularism was not uh, a word that is not there in the um, constitution. It was inserted in 1976, we all know that story. But secularism was always an important reference point for not merely for the Indian state, but Indian communities. And remember that uh, if we just go back to the national movement, there was a consensus, unlike Muslim League, there was a, or Hindu Mahasabha, there was a consensus, and that was the dominant consensus, that the future India would not be actually based entirely on one nation, one religion, one language type formula of Europe. Remember that the what was the British argument in national movement? Why they were opposing us? Their argument was that you do not constitute a, a nation because you are highly diversified. And they would, they keep, uh, you know, they kept telling us that your diversity is your weakness. What was, what Gandhi, Nehru, Ambedkar, Patel, what was their argument? Their argument, and if we go back to constant assembly debate, we find that all these great leaders were making the case that our diversity is not our weakness. Our diversity is our strength. And on the basis of that diversity, we are a nation of a different kind. So the consensus that we are a diversified nation is actually a secular conce conception. And that secular conception uh, did not need any word secularism to be included in the constitution. It was actually included in 1976 by the Congress in order to legitimize certain kind of policies. So what we have, a culture of secularism that is still surviving in India and politics of secularism that is used by Congress and non-BJP parties quite interestingly in last 30-35 years. Now, what is culture of secularism? Now, there, is, there are various studies. I can tell you number of studies in which this culture of secularism is time and again justified. 
For instance, CSDS survey of 2019, we asked this question, uh, who, uh, you know, India belongs to whom? And 97, 98% people would say that India belongs to all. What does it mean? It's a, it, it is a reflection of culture of secularism. Similarly, in 2021, Pew Research came out uh, with its survey on religion in India. And again, over 90% people, 90% responded both belonging to all religions in India. They argue quite stridently that India belongs to all. And more instru uh, you know, instru instructively, they would say that if a person is not respecting other religion, other than his or her own religion, this person cannot be truly religious or truly patriotic. And this finding is universally applicable to Hindus and Muslims of this country. What does it mean? It shows that there is a culture of inclusiveness and culture of secularism. Now, because Hindutva is the dominant narrative of Indian politics, non-BJP parties have also accepted that. And that's the reason why they are not interested in actually working out a new conception of secularism based on this culture of secularism. And that's the reason why we do not find any alternative to or any inclusive idea of uh, India that is relevant for the contemporary times. And I'm really, I'm really surprised that whenever this debate of idea of India comes, many of the people would take refuge in Nehru's idea or Gandhi's idea. Remember, these ideas of India, of Nehru or Gandhi or Ambedkar, these are our reference point. We need to be intellectually conscious to construct our own idea of India. And at the moment, I don't think except BJP's new India, there is any idea of India available to us. Why do you say that? Uh, Professor Ahmed, why do you say that? Uh, because... Then except uh, BJP's idea of India, there is no other idea of India available in the political narrative. Contemporary idea of India. Obviously, Nehru is there. Nehru's, Nehruvian idea of India is certainly there. But Nehruvian idea of India uh, is actually, uh, I would say, it, it was an outcome of a national debate of the 40s and 50s culminating in concert assembly. And remember, in 1991, when we decided that the state would roll back from the welfare policies, that was the moment when we actually uh, give up that idea of India, of Nehruvian kind. Remember, Indian constitution is, a, is an in, uh, interventionist constitution. It urged the state to intervene in the realm of social sector so that we could have a comprehensive overall development. Overall development of uh, the country. Now, if you look at uh, in the last 20-25 years, obviously there are people who would say that Nehruvian idea of India is important. I do subscribe to that idea of India. And that's why I said that uh, Nehru's secularism was very crucial when it comes to historical monument. But, you know, when you have, what do we mean by idea of India? You would have, you, in my view, an idea of India is an imagination of, a futuristic imagination of the country. Now, BJP's new India has got that imagination. Other political parties do not have that imagination at all. You know, in the course of uh, 
a conversation uh, you you there was a tremendous focus on in your the arguments uh, which you were making on the importance of local community uh, in deciding the places of conflict their nature why is it so there are two things why is it difficult for us uh, you know multiple uh, Uh, sections of society uh, worshiping at the same place why is it difficult for us in jerusalem uh, you have a western wall then you have alaksa uh, it's it's a it's a compound interconnected in the both i know that there's a conflict there uh, muslims feel agitated that the uh, jews start praying there in the compound but the the fact is that there is some sort of a compromise where the prayers happen why can't prayers happen at contested sites in india easily do we require a truth and reconciliation commission because no, 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 you no. were talking about I, local no. community and yeah. the whole focus here is either you go to the court or as you said make a law and you have argued and you have said this law in, in its in itself is not enough that has been your argument but the whole focus is either court or parliament Or, or, or to create a binary in which the one per, one party turns out to be the villain. Yeah, I. But you know, I am not in favor of any. Uh, you know, we we cannot have truth and reconciliation sort of thing in India, because uh, you know, Islam is an Indian religion. In Indian case, we cannot say that. You know, why why should I feel ashamed of the act uh, done by Say Aurangzeb in the name of Islam. I'm not responsible for that, and no Hindu is responsible for not responding to Aurangzeb at that point of time. So therefore, today's Hindus and Muslims are not are not responsible for whatsoever happened in the past. You know, past as I said that if we actually create or evoke the past as history, then it would become very difficult. But your question is important one. that uh, you know we reduce everything either to the court or to the parliament uh, i think people to people dialogue is important not truth and reconciliation obviously uh, you know gandhi said as you know i keep for me gandhi is actually a very important reference point to respond to all these issues gandhi said something very interesting uh, in course of time in his writing especially in 1930s he said that you know whenever i think of and this these are gandhi's words he said whenever i think of islam and muslim i always think that muslims are actually different from muslim rulers so he said that uh, i would like to see because that he was also making a moral moral claim i would like to see muslim behaving as prophet and his companions so if they continue to do so then the act of rulers won't become uh, some kind of a, you know the, that would become that would not become a responsibility for them to defend similarly gandhi said that my ram and krishna are not the ram of ram and krishna of ayodhya sector these are moral beings so if we abide by that and if we look at gandhian imagination of religion etc invite local communities and you know but you know i don't think that uh, you know this is a this is so difficult i'll i'll give you two or three examples in mumbai there are number of mosque temple side by side obviously conflict will bound to happen but many times they res- they resolve in my own uh, i belong to old delhi 
and my mosque was actually surrounded by my mosque meaning the uh, street where i used to live at, as a child and it had a mosque at that time and even now the mosque is still there it was actually uh, it was predominantly hindu locality and hindus of of that locality used to take care of the mosque uh, or the business of the mosque and similarly there was a temple uh, around that site so uh, th so the coexistence of two sort of religious places of worship and to find out a mutually convenient solution is not something that is uh, absolutely impossible now my final argument final example is from babri masjid remember that babri masjid had something to something uh, when it was intact before even before 1949 there was something called ram chabutra and that was considered to be the site where ram was born where was ram chabutra ram chabutra was inside the premises of that very mosque it means hindus were worshiping there for centuries and muslims were offering namaz in babri masjid only after the communal right of 1853 subsequently the right of 1885 and finally 1949 were the crucial moment when actually these people went to court and the court case became you know made this conflict a civilizational conflict and things became more complicated so there are number of sites in india where different communities have their own religious places of worship and they continue to do so so therefore i think there are two three things which we must remember one uh, no one has to apologize for the events of the past muslims of this country are not responsible for aurangzeb hindus of this country are not responsible for the hindus who did not respond to aurangzeb at that time that is first thing which we must remember second and most important we need to focus entirely on the spiritual side of our act if we really want to evolve a good society we must respect each other but respecting means respecting the spirituality of each other if my act of worship is going to be provocative to other that cannot be treated as a spirituality as all, at all and these things are not difficult so that's the second solution which we must do thirdly and most importantly i think uh, parliament should behave as parliament because you know and this is not entirely about um, the religious places of worship there is a serious disconnect between the issues people face or the imagination people have at the bottom level of society and their representation in the parliamentary debate especially in last 20 years so therefore there is a need to have more a uh, responsible parliamentary debate on these questions only then we can expect that rule of law of some kind see rule of law would become meaningful if we have a society that is actually conducive for that rule of law and this is what ambedkar uh, reminds us in 1940 1950 in his last speech to constituent assembly that we need a constitutional morality unfortunately we don't have that so if we have a constitutional morality certainly the spiritual aspect of religion would become a reference point to solve the conflicting issues my last question to you is because uh, there was a lot of emphasis uh, in context of religion you were the spirituality again and again 
uh, I know you are not a soothsayer. There is a uh, there is a weakness, or I would say, there's a profound absence right now on on a collective emphasis on the spiritual side of religion, mm. which is not leading to any conversation. Yeah. And absence of conversation, yeah. you will That's not have resolution. Yeah. And absence yeah. of That's conversation, a... you don't have resolution. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you writer, thinker, is there a way out in which uh, a spiritual conversation can take place? Is there a way? Is is there a physical site? Like, for example, your Akharas in medieval India, translation of various religious texts. Have you ever thought about it? Yeah. Yeah. That's the most, most, most important question. And thank you very much for raising this question. Uh, you know, our survey, uh, the Pew survey, also their advisor uh, for that. What we found, what is the meaning of religion? We found that the religion, the meaning of religion has changed quite considerably. So the spiritual aspect of religion is diminishing. While on the other hand, we have a religion called dogmatic religion. And where you have, you start believing on, you know, on fate, karma, or tantric baba, etc. So, and both uh, in, in all communities, including Muslims. So Muslim would also say that, in fact, 80% Muslim said that uh, they believe in karma. They know that fate is something that is very crucial. They also rely on Tantric and Baba, etc. So all Indian religions are facing a serious crisis of spirituality. So therefore, uh, we also need to understand what kind of morality we have at the moment. So uh, in the absence of any religious reform, we cannot have that spiritual side. People still, in, uh, you know, people are still searching for that. But unfortunately, uh, the, the domain of religion either highly politicized or the domain of religion is actually reduced to dogmatic conception of uh, this worldly act. So I think that there is a need to have some kind of a religious reform movement virtually in all religions of India. That's one thing which I can envisage. The second thing is when I say that spirituality, it does not mean that people are, people do not have, you know, the search for some kind of a peaceful uh, society. That anxiety is there. That uh, anxiety is certainly there among people. Now, it is up to the religious elite and the political leaders. And I'm emphasizing the fact that, uh, you know, the centrality of politics in our society. We cannot, you know, reduce everything to the uh, election, etc. Because politics, in my view, it's, it has got a wider meaning. So good politics also always required. Gandhi was, again, Gandhi and Gandhi. Because I find, I read Gandhi quite uh, you know, critically, and I find that this person uh, thought a lot about Indian society, and uh, he has got some clues. I am not a Gandhian in traditional sense of the term, but for me, I think the search, and this is the third point which I would like to underline, for me that the search for spiritual side of human existence can only be possible if we approach it from an inclusive uh, imagination of um, you know, 
inclusive imagination of what i call indian society so i think that is possible and that could only be possible if we critically look at the we must be critical to uh, the way in which religion is appropriated by religious elite we must approach that religion critically and try to find out that anxiety and uh, then you know it is up to the critical thinkers existed in every community to raise this issue see i am an academic i am not a social reformer so i cannot think of a physical site where this could be that ha- there, there, there this could be happen i can analyze it and i can certainly tell you that what is and what could be the possibility to deal with these issues i think professor ahmed very uh, it very well put you know i had uh, i had anticipated this conversation to uh, remain just limited on uh, uh the specificities of gyan vapi uh kutub and kashi but i think you very beautifully uh, addressed the issue uh, though uh, it was a different topic context of representation religion and spirituality emphasis on local community in resolving uh, uh religious conflict and the powerful example of uh, the grave of aurangzeb you gave and the way uh, uh, the whole meaning changes when uh, local communities uh, um, interact uh, with that monument in a different way many would say that's a very effeminate way uh, and that's not something which aurangzeb had practiced but then that's what it became after his death so i think uh, you address all the issues in uh, its diversity i'm not using the word complexity and i think the bottom line which i draw from the conversation uh, 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 with you is that the resolution can only take place uh through conversation and this propensity on part of uh, both hindus and muslim to rush to parliament and to the courts uh, i don't think it can create uh, any positive outcomes because uh, the conversational resolution is not like a judicial verdict and i think uh, that is why even the 2019 verdict though it has been very respectfully uh accepted by everyone continues to produce intellectual and academic debate in context of shift from malikana haq to uh, the matter of faith but the nonetheless it's a closed chapter and the judgment in itself uh, reemphasized the secular character of the constitution uh, uh, but i would uh, end this uh, twitter conversation uh, with the one assurance you had given me that you will take time with me again to come and talk about representation the issue of representation and i hope okay. that uh, conversation will also be as riveting as the one we had today professor ahmed thank you so thank you so much and thank you everyone for